Welcome to the City Beautiful Church podcast. Thank you for taking the time to join our family as we strive to live together in heavenly reality. For more great content, visit us online at citybeautiful.ch. Good morning. Three of you are awake. That's awesome. I'll take it. Good morning. Good morning, City Beautiful. It's lovely to see you. Uh, my name is John David, and um, for the past few weeks, we have been in the middle of a series called Thinking Christianly, and it's been a series that we've been walking through the book of Philippians, and our basic thesis for this entire series is that uh, Thinking Christianly leads us into this upside-down upside down kingdom of Jesus. And so it's this idea where typical hierarchies exist where the rich and the powerful and the mighty are on top and everyone else kind of trickles down underneath. But in the kingdom of Jesus, that is inverted and the powerful and the mighty are the lowest and we are to serve those of the lesser. So... The book of Philippians, here's a little, before we get started, I want to give you a little pro tip. If you're asked to speak about the book of Philippians and you have my level of spelling, um, when you type it into Google, you will find a lot of wonderful articles about a chain of islands off the coast of Southeast Asia. (laughs) And you'll get into it and you'll be like, oh, really? I didn't know Philippi was that far away. Um, But actually, that's not. That's the Philippines. And instead, it's something else. But... Um, today, our scripture our, that we will be reading from is Philippians 2, verses 12 through 30. And really, the big theme across all of the book of Philippians is it reframes our understanding of what fellowship means. Did anybody grow up in church? I grew up in church. Did you all also have that same guy who would come up to you and be like, where are you guys fellowshipping after church this Sunday? And they'd be like, oh, that was some good fellowship. Or, or you talk about how, like, they'd try to be, like, cool and be like, so what were you guys doing? And we're like, oh, well, we were playing video games last night. And they're like, wow, that's just, that's a blessed time of fellowship there. And so this idea of fellowship is, like, kind of skewed and you're kind of confused as to what that means. And then when, for me, high school came around and then there was this big, giant uh, movie. I don't know if you've heard of it. Uh, the Fellowship of the Ring. And so the Fellowship of the Ring, uh, some of you have heard of it, I see. Uh, The Fellowship of the Ring uh, changed that idea where it wasn't just hanging out and eating pizza and drinking soda, but there were hobbits and dwarves and elves and the kings of men were involved. And this was some sort of version of fellowship as well. And men's ministries all over the world latched onto this because they're like, now we can talk about fellowship and pull out our swords that we've been hiding in our closets and we can go into the woods and LARP and um, a bunch of stuff. I'm really glad. I'm so thankful that you guys appreciate LARPing jokes. This is, you are my people. Um, But ultimately Philippians uh, reminds us that we are bound together not as a fellowship of the ring, not as a fellowship of Halo or of pizza or Mountain Dew, but actually a fellowship of the cross. And so... We're about to read, but let's pray real fast, and then we'll get into our text this morning. Heavenly Father, we we thank you that you are here and you are present with us. Father, I pray that you will open our ears and open our minds to the text that we have today. 
Father, use me as a vessel to speak your words, to speak your truth, so that your will is done here today. Father, I pray that we come towards this with open arms and open hands, and that you would lovingly convict us where we need conviction, and lovingly heal us where we need healing. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay, so Philippians 12 through 30, what we're going to do is we're going to just read through the whole chunk and then we'll dissect it down. So, hang on. Therefore, verse 12, therefore, um, have you, has anybody seen the movie Vernon, Florida? Great. Homework. <laughs> in the movie Vernon, Florida, it's this documentary about this small town in North Florida and there's a pastor who goes on like a 30-minute rant about the word therefore and it's all preserved and it's amazing. You should watch it. Okay. Therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose. Do everything without grumbling or arguing, so that you may become blameless and pure children of God without fault in a warped and crooked generation. Then you will shine among them like the stars in the sky." As you hold firmly to the word of life, and then I will be able to boast on the day of Christ that I did not run or labor in vain. But even if I am being poured out like a drink offering on the sacrifice and service coming from your faith, I am glad and rejoice with all of you so that you too shall be glad and rejoice with me. I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon that I may also be cheered when I receive news about you. For I have no one else like him who will show genuine concern for your welfare. For everyone looks out for their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know that Timothy has proved himself because as a son with his father, he has served with me in the work of the gospel. I hope, therefore, to send him as soon as I see how things go with me. And I am confident in the Lord that I myself will come soon. But I think it is necessary to send back to you Epaphroditus, awesome name, my brother, co-worker, and fellow soldier, who is also your messenger, whom you sent to take care of my needs. For he longs for all of you and is distressed because you heard he was ill. Indeed, he was ill and almost died. But God had mercy on him, and not, not on him only, but also on me, to spare me sorrow upon sorrow. Therefore... Another therefore, I am all the more eager to send him so that when you see him again, you may be glad and I may have less anxiety. So then welcome him in the Lord with great joy and honor people like him because he almost died for the work of Christ. He risked his life to make up for the help you yourselves could not give me. Whew. There it is. There's our text. It's kind of long, but it's okay. We're going to talk about three themes this morning. Three themes, three big words. Well, two big words, one long word, but it's not really complicated. We're going to talk about soteriology, eschatology, and housekeeping. Soteriology is basically, it's derived from the Greek word soterio, which means saved or salvation. So it's basically the study of the doctrine of salvation. So that's, that's just a fancy way to say salvation. We're going to talk about ecclesiology, which is the study of the church. Ecclesia is the Greek word for church, so study of the church. Great. 
then we're going to go into housekeeping. Now, housekeeping derives from the Greek word. No, I'm just kidding. I have no idea. Um, it just means keeping of the house. You know that. Uh, I feel like sometimes um, theologians are like the dad from my big, big fat Greek wedding. We're like, you give me any word, and I'll tell you the Greek word that makes that word. And so we just love our Greek words, so we're going to read some of them and talk about them. So what we're actually going to dice, we're going to do, this is kind of weird, this is kind of uh, Inception-ish, we're going to dissect this text actually in reverse. We're going to tackle each theme in reverse, which helps provide context actually to the preceding theme, which is going to build us to the most challenging text, which in this case happens to be at the beginning. So you with me? So we had all that text that we just read through. We're going to talk about salvation. We're going to talk about the church. We're going to talk about housekeeping. But we're going to start with housekeeping, then go to the church, then go to salvation. Cool? You with me? Let's do it. Housekeeping, verses 19 through 30. We're not going to read it all because it's, it's the big long one. It's the one where Paul is talking about Timothy and he's talking about that awesome name Epaphroditus. I kind of feel like, you know, a few years back where like everybody was naming their kid like Aiden or like Axel or something like that. Epaphroditus, right there. Next year, top 10 baby names, Epaphroditus. You just wait. It's prophetic. Um, the Pauline epistles, they've never been my favorite. I got to be honest. When I went to seminary, there was like, you go to so many classes all about the Pauline epistles. First, there'd be like, uh, Pauline epistles, the overview. Then you'd have Pauline epistles, part one, Pauline epistles, part two, part three. And then you'd actually study the specific epistles. You know, first Corinthians, second Corinthians. By the time you're like, okay, I get it. We're letters written to churches. They never were my favorite because I'm more of a narrative guy. I'm much more preferred like stories of the Old Testament or the Gospels or something. The book of Acts is pretty awesome. Something that has some story driven through it. It's never been my favorite. And the reason why it's never been my favorite is because of these moments. These like housekeeping moments. We just got this beautiful poem that Ryan talked about last week. The Christ poem. Where it's this beautiful poetry. And I'm like, cool. I'm in. I'm down with the poetry. But then you start talking about like, yeah, this guy was sick. And then he, we thought he was going to die, but he, like, he didn't die, so like that's good, because I would have been sad, and I'm going to send him to you, but not before I send this other guy to you, and by the way, like, I want, it's like I'm listening to someone's, like, travel plans in a letter, like, you're eavesdropping on Paul's travel plans, and it's just like, I got nothing, I got nothing for that, I got nothing, that doesn't speak to me right now, um, but it's perplexing that they would preserve this. And it's especially perplexing when you know that like the book of Philippians was actually compiled probably of three different letters that Paul had sent at three different times. So not only were they like, oh, we got to preserve it. We're like, we'll leave the weird bits in because we got to preserve this text because this is like pure Paul letter. But actually this was probably compiled of a handful of different letters that Paul had sent over to this, this church and they revered them and they honored them and they studied them. And even in their compiling, they decided in their wisdom, to keep these parts in. And I was wondering why. <laughs> why would they keep these bits in? And then I, I thought back to uh, my profession. So I am a designer and a storyteller by trade. And one of the things that I learned is back in the 1960s, late 1960s, there's this guy named Marshall McLuhan. And what he came on the scene, he was a philosopher from Canada, and his big thing was he challenged the notion that used to exist. The leading notion was that content was king. 
Didn't matter what the context was, as long as the content was solid. And this is the argument that I used against my mother in high school when I started listening to like Christian death metal. I'm like, mom, it doesn't matter that they have long freaky hair and that they're like, because they're talking, if you dissected them, they're actually like, Jesus. And like, it works. Mom, it works. It doesn't matter. It doesn't, you're so lame. You don't understand. It doesn't matter. But I hadn't heard of Marshall McLuhan yet. And his big philosophy was that the medium is the message. Or in another way, you could say that the medium is inseparable from the message. The context informs and influences the content. Even when we talk about translation and we talk about like how the Greek can be turned into this or the Greek can be turned into that. Like the context when you translate, you are kind of interpreting too at the same time. So the medium is the message. So what does that have to do with the book of Philippians? So the nature of the medium, the channel through which the message is transmitted is just as important as the meaning. So we have here a scenario where we have a letter and it's important to preserve this letter and it's important to preserve the housekeeping bits. Why? Because in contrast to the Old Testament, where all of the scriptures were written by prophets, scribes, kings, patriarchs, poets. In this moment, in the housekeeping moment, we see that one, of, one part of the great Christian paradox is that there is divinity in the mundane. That the day-to-day -day actions that you are doing right now, that you are acting out in your life when you're going to work, when you're doing the things that you don't want to do, there is divinity in those things. Paul's Expedia travel plans, there, are, there is divinity in those. There is something beautiful that's seeing that the people that lived 2,000 years ago that were forming the faith that we are following today were going through the same things. He was concerned about his friend. He was concerned about his health. He was trying to navigate, trying to organize, trying to figure out who do I send to which church? Who do I send to which place? There's, di there's divinity in the mundane. The New Testament is filled with accounts and letters from normal people who through Christ have been made more. And instead of skipping this mundane part, let us use that as a lens to now look into our next theme. So the next theme, ecclesiology, the study of the church. As a refresh, let's read, let's read Philippians 14 16, through 16. Do everything without grumbling or arguing, so that you may become blameless and pure children of God without fault in a warped and crooked generation. Then you will shine among them like the stars in the sky as you hold firmly to the word of life. And then I will be able to boast on the day of Christ that I did not run in labor or vain. Now, if this sounds familiar, it's because this has a familiarity to a verse in John, in John 13, when he says, when Jesus is saying, a new command I give to you, love one another as I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. So Jesus has simplified this entire idea down to just love one another. If I can love you and you can love me and we can love those around us, it'll be clear that we are servants of Christ. Now we know Paul hasn't ripped off this verse in John and like made it his own because this verse in John is actually written after the book of Philippians. So what we see is that these are two verses flowing from the same spirit. 
This is the vision of the church, not only from Paul, but from Christ himself. The interplay amongst you and I as believers and with those on the outside is the key component of the church. Epaphroditus and Timothy were co-laboring. They were co-working together for this common goal. What we just spoke about in the last section, which is actually the next section, is talking about how they were co-laboring. They're working together. We see this kind of like intricate trading off, this intricate, we're all working together for the common goal. Paul, who's probably in prison, is sending his servants and sending his people to all work together, to all common labor for this common goal. So if that's what our challenge is, if that's what our charge is, if we're supposed to love one another, love those outside of us, if we're supposed to do things without arguing or grumbling or complaining, if we're supposed to be pure and blameless, let's take a little, let's take a little peek and see how we're doing. So, state of the church. From 2000 to 2016, church attendance has dropped from 69% to 52%, which doesn't sound crazy, but statistically that's huge. This is the largest drop in the past century. For the past 100 years, church attendance has, has like steadied in the 70s, 72, 73, spike up to like 70, every, every, 78 every once in a while. And you're talking about these long flowing trends on a chart. Then all of a sudden within the past 10 years, things have plummeted. In the 80s and the 90s, we blamed it on denominations. Those pesky denominations, they did it all. We blamed it on the presentation. We blamed it on, oh, well, they're too stuffy. They've got big crosses outside their building and no one wants to be reminded of the big crosses. Or that reminds them of their, their church their parents went to and they hated that, so well, let's change it. Well, it didn't work. We still do this today. We try to implement new technologies. We have these wars amongst churches in our cities about, like, who has the coolest Instagram? Oh, yeah, that was great. Like, double tap. Woohoo! We have these things where each church like tries to outdo the next one. Who has the best lights? Who has the best worship team? Who has the best preachers? Who has the best preachers? <laughs> Obviously we do. <laughs> Seems that we ourselves were a little late to the medium is the message content. And I, I know there's some idea and this statistic isn't even really that necessarily surprising because there's been this new trend that has risen up that has been like, well, yeah, well, that's just talking about religion, but I'm in a relationship with Jesus. I don't need that religion stuff. I don't need that building stuff. I need, I just have a relationship. The gap between believer and practitioner is widening statistically. So that trend is, is going the way that you think it would go. But maybe it was this idea that if we can't change the structure enough, maybe just taking out the crosses or just maybe painting the church a different color didn't change enough. Maybe we just need to burn the whole thing down and then it'll be good. Then people will like us. Then people will see the love of Christ, right? Whoa, let's look. Only 16% of outsiders, 16, have a good impression of Christianity as a whole. And even more so, only 3% have a good impression of evangelicals. Now, the interesting part about this statistic is that this is taken before any of the political entanglements that we see now in this current era. This is like four years ago. So I hate to burst our little millennial bubble, but our rebrand isn't working. This is far removed from the blameless and pure thing that Paul is calling us to. 16% of people outside of the faith have a good impression of us. 
See, what's interesting here is that Paul, when he's talking about being pure and blameless, doing things without grumbling, being seen in the sight of the others, he's talking about both horizontal and vertical relationships. These are manifestations of the same condition. If we can't have good horizontal relationships and we can't have good vertical relationships, they're tied together. If I can't have a good relationship with you, then odds are my relationship with Christ isn't good as well and vice versa. Paul is asking us to correct our horizontal and vertical relationships. Let's move on to soteriology, salvation. This is where it gets fun. Philippians 12. Therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose. I just want to take a moment to thank Ryan right now. Because last week, he got one of his favorite scriptures in all of the Bible. The Christ poem. This beautiful poem that talks about Christ's reconciliation. And then he gives me, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. (laughs) Thanks. So, we're going to do what I jokingly talked about before. Let's explore the Greek a little bit. Let's talk about what this verse could possibly mean. First of all, uh, I did, I had to look this up a lot because there's a lot of people that dance around this verse. It's a really tricky verse to like, they're like, oh, it can't mean that because, you know, God doesn't like you to be afraid and stuff. So, so a lot of people change it like, oh, it's talking about like fear, like awe, like, oh, like, like, oh, like how when Moses approached God on Mount Sinai, like he took off his shoes and he was afraid. And that's what it's talking about. It's like approach your salvation with like this awe and reverence that like Moses has. But what's actually interesting is if you go back to the Greek, and, and this, this is not to despair or disparage or just to like argue <laughs> with people who have gone that far. Because there's... Because Greek is an ancient language, this ancient version, this Koine Greek that we're talking about here, there's constantly new references that are being found and there's new understandings like, oh, now that we've read this word in like 16 other books, we now understand what this could possibly mean. And N.T. Wright in his translation, who has probably explored more Greek, more Koine Greek than, than any biblical scholar to date, says that it actually has nothing to do with an emotion. This is not talking about fear. This is not talking about awe. This is not talking about any kind of actual emotion that we have. It's actually a phrase that means to the degree of severity that you have towards a situation. So when you're approaching something in this Greek context with fear and trembling, you're approaching it with extreme sincere um, intention. With utter seriousness is how he describes it. How he translates it. Then... We talk about the working out part. Now, this is the part that gets all of the Calvinists all frustrated. Like, no, there's no works in salvation. Like, there's, like, through faith in Christ alone and all these things. And actually, what this translates to is to a continual habitual dedication. We're talking about a dedication. It's the same way that, like, getting married is different from being married. You can get married, and that's fun, and there's a party, and then... Remaining married can also be fun, but it is also work. It is also a daily task, something that you have to be habitually committed to. But there's something else. 
There's something that actually in most of the studies that I looked up to look for this, skip over because obviously when he's talking about this, he's talking about you, right? You must do this. We're going to pause and talk about the sinner's prayer. I remember the first time I ever led someone in the sinner's prayer, in the sinner's prayer, I was 12 years old. I was on a missions trip to Belize. And we had done that thing where when you go on a missions trip, they have like an old boom box that they play a really worn out tape. And you do like a skit where you're like trapped in a cage or something. And you're like... And you do that for like 10 minutes, and then someone comes out. For those listening on the podcast, I just did an amazing interpretation of being trapped in a cage. So you missed out on that one. Um, but so you do that for like 10 minutes, and then somebody like gets a Bible, and they're all like sad, and then they pull the Bible over their face, and they get happy, and they do that one, and then like they pull a key out of it, and then they let people out of the cage, and then everybody gets saved, and you're like, woohoo, we're going to heaven. And so we were doing that in a prison. <laughs> Dramatic pause. <laughs> the medium is the message, people. The medium is the message. We were doing that in a prison. And we got up. They had one of the kids, the other youth on the missions trip, get up and speak about their testimony, which was, I mean, it's, it's sweet. And I love that kids go on mission trips. I really do. I really love that, that they start to understand the power of their testimony. But like when you're 12, you're like, my testimony was like, yeah, so I, I stole a cookie and I realized that that was sinning. And so I didn't want to go to hell for stealing cookies. So I asked Jesus in my heart and we're good. And then there's like all these like hard criminals there. And you're like really expecting this to just not go well. But what's amazing is that the power of the Holy Spirit still works and still moves and they are bawling their eyes out and they are just floored and they all start they do an altar call like a traditional altar call and they ask all of us like oh just go stand, stand up in the front of the stage so we're like standing there picking our noses like not knowing what to do and then they're like so when we ask you if you want to accept Christ in your heart to change your life and all these things why don't you come up to one of these, these young people and they will pray for you to have Christ come into your heart and we're all like what? We don't know how to do that. I mean, I'd heard the thing a million times. I'd repeated it. We did the whole, at my church, the head bowed, every eye closed, and repeat after me thing. So like, I knew it, but I was terrified. What if I forget a key word? What if I forget a key phrase? What if I go through the whole thing and like skip the come into my heart part, and this guy cruises on the rest of his life thinking that he's all kosher, and next thing you know, like he gets up to the pearly gates and like, no. John David didn't mention the one really important part of the sinner's prayer. Sorry, buddy, you're out. I was terrified. It, we laugh about it now, but like literally as this like sixth grader, I was like mortified. And I led him through the prayer. And then I found out that they were going to lead everybody through the prayer communally. So he got like a double dose. And I remember the whole time that they were leading through, I was like, did I say that part? Yes, I did say that part. Okay, good. I'm like, I say, okay. Yes, I said that part too. Okay, good. Okay, I'm safe. Okay, good. Woo! That was a close one. We did it. Let my first guy to the Lord put a badge on me. But then as I got older, I started to, to think a little bit differently about that. And then I went through some seminary classes, which, which 
which some of them were heavy on that and some of them were not. And, and, I, and I started to have some conflicts with it. And you read these scriptures like this one in Philippians where it talks about working through your salvation and you're just like, what is, what is going on? Why does this not, why does this idea of working through your salvation conflict so heavily with my like easy say a prayer, get into heaven idea of, of Christianity? And I think it comes down to an over-obsession with the sinner's prayer can lead to a reductive salvation that ignores the full redemptive measure of the gospel. This is something that we've talked about here a lot. The gospel is about more than just going to heaven when you die, but about actually bringing the kingdom of heaven down here on earth as well. And if the salvation that you have is not affecting the things around you, then I question question the validity of it. Here is where this all leads down to. The misunderstanding of fellowship. Oh, you got some pizza. That's a good fellowship. The failed horizontal and vertical relationships. They all lead to this. And I think it has to do with there's a new, it's not a new one, but it's our devotion to an idol that has snuck into the church. Now, for the past few weeks, Ryan has been talking about these different idols and how in Philippi, they were surrounded by idolatry. And we like to think, oh, well, we live in this, like, Christian nation, so, like, we don't struggle with those same idols. But in actuality, we struggle with the same ones or potentially even new ones. The idol I want to talk about this morning to kind of close things up is the idolization of individualism. You see, we we skip translating the your and the your own because obviously Paul is talking about personal salvation, right? But the word there used to translate into your is, a, is a, uh, a collective plural form of the word you. It's like when I say, you look great today. I'm not saying, Ryan, you look great today. Because you just, you know, phoned it in. It's, yeah, it's his day off. So he's like, what? I'm wearing my jersey. <laughs> it's a collective you. The progress of our salvation, what this is insinuating, is that our progress of our salvation is inseparable to the church. Now, I'm not talking about when people have used like spiritual abuses, or fear, or control. When they try to say like, well, you have to be part of my church because we're the only person that gets it right. And so therefore, like your salvation is in question unless you're, unless you're part of my institution. Anyone who says that, that your salvation is tied to their leadership or their community is perverting this principle to serve themselves. So just be aware of that. That's not what I'm talking about. This is the condition that Paul was leading the church at Philippi away from. And I think this is what the Holy Spirit is trying to lead us away from as well. The idolization of individualism. But individualism, right? It's not supposed to be bad, right? We're in the 21st century. It's supposed to be the crowning jewel of Western philosophy, right? We're like, we're supposed to build a society where everyone was free to be themselves and think what they want and do what they want and and be free. Freedom, right? Freedom. America, freedom. We take Descartes' I think, therefore, I am to its ultimate ends. And we feel like, well, if a job doesn't bring me fulfillment after three months, I'll just quit it, go freelance. If an industry isn't convenient enough, easy. We'll just disrupt it. If a relationship isn't emotionally satisfying, regardless of how much time or investment I put into it, just break up. 
divorce, whatever, it's easy. If a belief system doesn't meet my standards, easy, I'll just deconstruct it. And there's this idea that maybe when we were burning down the church buildings, maybe we didn't burn down enough. Maybe we should just take it all down and sift through the ashes. And that's where a lot of our society has been. But I have new statistics about, let's see the outcome of that. Let's see if that's really what's supposed to happen. And that's the direction. And individualism is this like shining example of where we should be going as a society. Well, then society should be great, right? They, uh, Barna interviewed a handful of young people. And here are some of their uh, findings. When they asked them, the church, is the church a place where you feel that you belong? The unchurched said yes, only 10%. And the, dis- the disciples, like heavily discipled people, very involved in their church, 88% said yes. Now this isn't surprising at all because if you're unchurched, obviously the church isn't going to... I'm actually curious about the 10% who's like, yeah, I don't go to church. Do you feel like you belong there? Yeah, absolutely. I just don't go. I have some questions for them. But then, okay, so, so let's talk about application then. So like how, how does that apply? When asked, do you have someone in your life who you can go to for advice? The unchurched, only 45% of them had one. The disciples yet had 77%. When asked, do you have friends who are honest with you about your weaknesses? The unchurched have 34% and the discipled have 66%. How about relief from the anxiety of just daily life? Only 18% of people unchurched say that they can find relief from that anxiety, while 63% of disciple people can. Now, I think this is a challenge for us internally as the church to, to try to stab at that 63%. But still, 18%. When asked, do you feel loved and valued? The unchurched responded only 26% yes, while the disciple said 83. So it turns out that our hyper-individualism has actually led us to hyper-isolationism. There's some pretty damning research about how isolation leads to greater levels of anxiety and substance abuse, how this can lead to a lack of intimacy, resulting in a in a, a, a rise, a dramatic rise in the levels of addiction to pornography, and even how there's a lot of brain science showing the negative cognitive effects that has on, on young developing minds, especially young boys. When we idolize the individual, we become our own lens. We become the arbiters of truth. I will believe in that doctrine as long as it hits these, these axioms that I've made up for myself. I will understand what they're saying and I will go along with it as long as you prove it to me first. We disregard the wisdom of the past and the wisdom of the community for our own understanding. I think, therefore, I am. When God says, when you read a scripture, work out your salvation in fear and trembling, he's like, you're talking to me? I'm confused. I thought I wasn't supposed to be afraid. I thought I wasn't supposed to tremble. You go right into the fear and trembling and you ignore the fact that Paul's talking to an entire community. Communally, we work together. Philippians reminds us that we, remember, are a fellowship of the cross. So it's together that fellowship calls people into salvation and then labors with them through it. 
together that fellowship finds unity, sometimes through peaceful discourse, and strives to be blameless and pure. Remember, the cross is not just a symbol of our salvation, but it's a symbol of sacrificial love, the kind where I lay down my life for you and you lay down your life for me. We work through with utter seriousness our salvation, laying down our lives for one another. And not just for the people inside this room, but outside the room as well. If, if we do that, we are promised to shine like the stars in the night sky. We are promised to be these brilliant points of light in a sea of darkness. When people are lost, when people are trying to find their way, there are anchors in the sky that point them home. We can be that. We are promised that we will be that if we can align our horizontal and vertical relationships well. Become that fellowship, that self-sacrificing fellowship of the cross. beautiful representation of this is communion. Communion is all about aligning ourselves both with each other and with God. Last week, uh, if you were here, Ryan led us through a new way, this like new way to do communion. And it's a way that we serve one another through it. And I want to, I want to do that again today. So what we're going to do a little, a little amendum to it is we're going to leave the juice on the table. That got a little confusing. We're going to leave the juice on the table. So when the first person comes up, they're going to take communion. And then you take the bowl containing the bread and you hold it and you serve it to the next person in line. They'll dip it in the juice, take it. And they take the bread, turn. Does that make sense? I see some head nods. Just let me know. Okay, great. Awesome. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you are the prime example of that co-laboring, self-sacrificial person that laid down your life for us. And as we come to your table, may we correct and realign any wrong relationship that we have, whether it's vertically with you or horizontally with those around us. May we be those lights, those shining stars in the night sky for a lost world and a lost generation that they can find you. Not us, but you. Amen. Go ahead and you can come to the table. This has been the City Beautiful Church podcast. To stay connected, follow us on social everywhere at City Beautiful CH. We hope you join us again soon.